Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about pancreatic cancer with Dr. Mandar Deepak Mazumdar. Dr. Mazumdar is an assistant professor of genetics and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Mundar, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about pancreatic cancer. It's certainly not one of the big five. You know, we talk about breast cancer and lung cancer and colon cancer and prostate cancer. Pancreatic cancer is a little bit rarer. Is that right? That's true, Anise. Pancreatic cancer is somewhere between the 10th and 11th most uh, common cause of cancer in the United States, but it's rapidly uh, contributing to uh, cancer deaths in the United States. It's now the third leading cause of cancer death in the United States and is soon expected to be the second leading cause within the next few years. So I think it's becoming a very important um, cause of cancer that we really have to, uh, to, to deal with. Yeah. And that's, I guess, because pancreatic cancer, although it may be rare, is often pretty fatal. Is that right? That's right. Most patients with pancreatic cancer are diagnosed at advanced stages. Either it's uh, beyond uh, surgical resection, which is our mainstay of therapy for cure, or it has already spread to other organs, making it exceedingly challenged to treat at that point. And so the idea, I guess, is to either find it early or prevent it altogether. So let's take each of those two in turn. I know that your lab is really looking at prevention, but maybe you can talk a little bit before we get into that as the bulk of our discussion today. What are kind of the signs and symptoms that people should be aware of so that they could try to catch it a little bit earlier? So pancreatic cancer, unfortunately, is challenging to actually diagnose early because many of the symptoms that are associated with it are quite nonspecific or associated with other different, more common conditions. So some common symptoms include abdominal pain or discomfort, nausea, um, weight loss. Many of these things can be caused by other uh, factors that are more common, such as reflux, for example. So that's one of the challenges in really diagnosing. But I think that uh, one of the things that we do know is that there are a number of risk factors associated with pancreatic cancer. In particular, about 10% of all pancreatic cancers are associated with some sort of genetic uh, family, familial cause. And so certainly in patients, uh, in people who have first-degree relatives with a prior history of pancreatic cancer or multiple family members who've had pancreatic cancer, that should alert uh, more uh, complete evaluation and, and discussion, at least, with their physicians. But again, it's it doesn't have very common symptoms that are unique, making it very challenging to really diagnose early. Right. Now, a number of uh, uh, studies are being done now to try to identify factors that are involved in early detection. Hopefully, some of those will lead to some blood-based uh, blood tests that we can actually do to try and identify some markers that might give us an inkling that pancreatic cancer may be maybe there, that would al- allow us to do some follow-up testing. But we're still in the research phases of that. We're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. And so because the symptoms are so nonspecific, people, I would presume, kind of don't pay attention to that. And by the time, you know, things have kind of festered on for quite a while, they then present and have are found to have disease that's gone and spread to other organs, making it more difficult to treat. 
You talked a little bit about genetics, and you said that about 10% of all pancreatic cancer patients have a family history. That also means that 90% of people don't. And so um, so even if you don't have a history, uh, a family history of pancreatic cancer, you know, you, you should maybe be paying attention even to those nonspecific symptoms. And if they don't go away or if they don't have a reason behind them, maybe getting checked out. That's exactly right. So if there are symptoms that are persistent or you don't have a great explanation for, a discussion with your doctor is always necessary. It's always possible that pancreatic cancer may be there. It's more likely that something else is, but it's better to be evaluated and and, and checked to make sure that pancreatic cancer wouldn't be a cause of the symptoms. Tell us a little bit more about the genetics of pancreatic cancer. I mean, when we talk about a family history, uh, is it um, something that you know, is age-specific? Uh, should it run on one side of the family or the other? Are there multiple family members who uh, may be involved or should be involved in order for you to kind of be a little bit more uh, cautious? Um, does it affect other cancers? Tell us a little bit more about that whole space of the genetics of pancreatic cancer. So about 10%, like we discussed, about 10% of all pancreatic cancers associated with some sort of family history. And the things to be aware of in that is multiple first-degree relatives, so that is siblings, parents, children with uh, pancreatic cancer, particularly first-degree relatives who are diagnosed prior to the age of 50. The more uh, pancreatic cancer that's found in your family, there's a greater risk of developing pancreatic cancer. And there's a number of known gene mutations that have been identified in pancreatic cancer that are also associated with other cancer types, such as colorectal cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer. So certainly, if any of those have been found in family members, one should at least discuss with a geneticist for getting tested for those types of mutations, uh, which might uh, alter how to actually screen or to try and diagnose pancreatic cancer early. And so some of those mutations, I I know as a breast cancer surgeon, you know, things like BRCA, um, you know, we think of BRCA, we think breast and ovarian cancer, but BRCA also increases your risk of pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer. So if you have a family history of breast cancer, and let's say one of your family members has been diagnosed with a BRCA mutation, you're at increased risk of carrying that same mutation. You go to a geneticist or a genetic counselor and you're tested because testing now is pretty ubiquitous and actually fairly cheap. Um, so if you carry that genetic mutation, most people think about all of the things that they can do to prevent breast cancer or ovarian cancer, and certainly prophylactic surgery is in the cards. But what about pancreatic cancer? How do you prevent that? You can't really remove your pancreas. That's right. There's no surgical removal of the pancreas that would be used as a prevention, though there are certain screening programs that one can get a part of that would... Help you to find it earlier. Correct. That would include things like imaging and other things that can be done to find it. There are also a number of non-genetic risk factors that we know can contribute to pancreatic cancer, and they likely will cooperate with gene mutations. And those are some of the lifestyle things that can be done to try and decrease your risk of pancreatic cancer. For example, we know for quite some time now that smoking is associated with pancreatic cancer, about two-and-a-half-fold increased risk of developing the disease over the general population, so quitting smoking might be 
one thing to do. We know there's several other uh, modifiable risk factors, increasing, including obesity, which is becoming, which is soon to surpass smoking as the leading modifiable risk factor for pancreatic cancer, um, and it's associated with somewhere between two and a two-fold, two and a half-fold increased risk again over the general population. And so, losing weight may be helpful in terms of reducing risk. Um, there are a number of dietary things that have been associated, though none of them are convincing. But there are lifestyle modifications in terms of tobacco cessation, stopping smoking, or altering diet to lose weight that might be helpful. What about alcohol? So there is uh, some studies that do so an association of alcohol with pancreatic cancer development, though the studies are not conclusive. There's also an association with the excessive alcohol use and inflammation of the pancreas, uh, pancreas, also known as pancreatitis. And certainly chronic pancreatitis, that is inflammation that's recurrent and frequent, um, can be a risk factor, a major risk factor for pancreatic cancer. Um, but in terms of limited exposures of alcohol, there is some association, though it's not uh, necessarily as strong as uh, tobacco and or um, obesity. So, you know, you make a good point, Mumdar, uh, which is, you know, obesity, we often talk about obesity um, and sitting is becoming the new smoking and the number of cancers that are increased uh, with obesity. Your lab has been looking at that in particular with pancreatic cancer. Tell us a little bit more about the research that you do. Certainly. So we've become interested in looking at non-genetic factors that might be contributed to cancer development. And this is uh, in part due to the fact that we can study the the cancer-associated gene mutations in animal systems or model systems such as the mouse. And what we found is when we engineer the cancer-associated mutations into mice, while they do get the human cancers, We can engineer them in a large fraction of the pancreas, but we get very little tumor that develops. And even the tumors that develop, most of them don't progress to the advanced stages. So this suggested to us perhaps there are non-mutational factors, non-genetic factors that may be driving. And whether the environment or some other factors within the person might be contributing was something that we hypothesized. And so we actually turned to epidemiologic studies that had actually shown uh, a risk of increased pancreatic cancer development in obesity individuals. And this has been known for now nearly two decades. In fact, obesity is associated with 13 different cancer types, including many of the uh, cancers in the gastrointestinal tract, including pancreatic cancer. And our research is really focused on trying to understand how obesity might contribute to cancer development in hopes of maybe identifying new ways of preventing and or treating the disease. And so what we've Uh, found actually in studying obesity in mice, in which we can engineer the mice to be obese or give them a high-fat diet, for example, to make them dietarily obese, that they can act, that the obesity itself can actually cooperate with gene mutations to promote the development and progression of pancreatic cancer. And uh, we can actually do studies in mice to make them lose weight um, using either genetic or, again, dietary tricks. And we've found that if you do that at an early stage prior to the development of advanced tumors, you can actually use that as a preventative strategy in these mice to actually prevent the emergence of advanced pancreatic cancer. And so what you're basically telling us is that obesity kind of is synergistic with genetic mutations in pancreatic cancer in their progression and in their development. And so if you have a BRCA mutation, one of the things you can do before you ever get pancreatic cancer, as soon as you know about that genetic mutation, or even when you just have a family history, is to lose weight because you will reduce your risk of getting pancreatic cancer or at least having the pancreatic cancer be as aggressive as it otherwise could be. That's right. That's what our study 
studies are suggesting both in humans from the epidemiology and also in our mouse models that actually weight loss might be helpful in reducing the risk of pancreatic cancer and certainly in those of, uh, we would think in, of high genetic risk. And so does the same thing apply to quitting smoking? So uh, that is less well studied in the realm of pancreatic cancer. We do know, for example, in heart disease that quitting smoking can have a dramatic uh, improvement in reducing the risk of of heart disease. And, you know, losing weight uh, or reducing obesity also has cardiovascular benefits. So in terms of heart disease as well as cancer, we think that's that's helpful. So we really think that um, trying to make strides, and it was as challenging as it may be, to reduce or stop smoking and to, to... lose some weight uh, might be very helpful in terms of not only improving general health, including cardiovascular disease, but also might play a role in cancer prevention. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, those two those two things, if you want to live longer and better, um, are two things that should be at the top of the ticket. Now, you talked about, you know, genetically or, you know, doing dietary tricks to get mice to lose weight. And so, We can make mice lose weight. It's harder to get people to lose weight. Do you have any tricks or tips on studies that have been done that may have helped people to lose weight? So this is a, is a big problem, and how do we get people to lose weight? And a lot of it is not uh, is genetics. Some of it can be genetics. Some of it is trying to maintain the weight when people have already lost weight. I can't speak to uh, any specific tricks or tips that would be very helpful. There are clinics now there, including here at Yale, that are obesity clinics that do use adjunctive medications that can be very helpful to uh, reducing weight and to keeping the weight off. And I would suggest that for those individuals are having a hard time through just altering their diet um, or exercising to lose weight, that trying to take advantage of some of these uh, opportunities, including potentially going to some of these clinics, might be very helpful. Um, so I think that there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of focus from a public health standpoint in reducing obesity. I don't think anyone has a magic bullet. Darn it. <laughs> but I do think that there are dietary exercises as well as medications that might be helpful for a large fraction of people. And as I've discussed already, I think that is really important. Uh, not only for general health outcomes, but I think it actually plays an important role for cancer prevention for, again, a large fractions of cancers. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that. We are going to take a quick break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about pancreatic cancer, the role of genetics, and the environment with my guest, Dr. Mandar Deepak Mazumdar. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anish Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Mandar Deepak Mazumdar. We're discussing pancreatic cancer and the role of genetics and the environment in cancer. And one of the things that we talked about right before the break is that while pancreatic cancer is pretty rare, 10th or 11th most common cancer in the United States, it is rapidly becoming one of the most common causes of cancer-related death getting up there into the second or third leading cause of cancer-related death. So something really to think about. And what you had mentioned, Mamdar, was that there are a number of things that increase our risk. Some things we can't control, our genetics, our family history. Some things we can control. So quitting smoking, losing weight, two incredibly good modalities to reduce your risk of developing pancreatic cancer and reducing the stage at which it's likely going to present at. But I wanted to go back and talk about genetics. So, you know, you had talked about the fact that, you know, people have a family history, they may have a genetic mutation. Tell us a little bit more about the work that you've been doing looking at genetics in pancreatic cancer and and how that might actually affect people. So a number of mutations have been identified in pancreatic cancer and specific cancer genes, and that's given us a great understanding in terms of how pancreatic cancers develop. One of the hallmark genes in the disease is really this, uh, is, is the gene KRAS, which is mutated in more than 90% of all human pancreatic cancers. And it's clear that it's important in the development of pancreatic cancer. When we engineer mice with KRAS mutations in the pancreas, they get pancreatic cancers that look and behave just like the human disease. We also know that KRAS mutations can promote the growth and development of tumors in many other um, organs, including the lungs and, and the colon. In fact, KRAS mutations are found about 30% of lung cancers and about 50% of colon and rectal cancers. And we know from cell studies that KRAS really promotes cell proliferation, the ability to duplicate themselves, kind of a hallmark of cancer uh, development. Now, importantly, KRAS has been, and its, uh, and its role in cancer has been known for nearly four decades now. And uh, we know from other tumor types in which we've identified the hallmark genetic mutations, that we can often target those mutations with therapies that can be quite effective. Unfortunately for KRAS, it's actually been very hard to develop drugs that can block its function. And so one of the things that has actually emerged recently is new develops in KRAS drugs. And one of those is a specific drug that targets a specific flavor or mutation of KRAS, which we call the G12C mutation, which is found in about 14% of all lung cancers, but only about 2 to 3% of pancreatic cancers. Nonetheless, this drug is now, these, uh, this class of drugs is now being tested in clinical trials. And in lung cancer, at least, the data are quite promising that they can lead to shrinkage of the tumors in, in a large fraction of patients. Now, it remains to be seen whether the effect will be true in pancreatic cancer, but we're excited that now for the first time we actually have a drug that can target at least a specific mutation in pancreatic cancer. So I just wanted to clarify for our our listeners out there, there's a difference in terms of genetics that are germline genetics and cancer genetics. Can you can you clarify that a little bit? Because I think when we've talked about genetics, we've talked about, you know, going and if you have a family history, seeing a geneticist and seeing if you carry a genetic mutation like BRCA and so on. And then we kind of transitioned and we talked about looking at cancer genetics, the the 
genetic mutations of a cancer cell. Can you talk about and clarify that difference just so that I make sure that everybody out there understands that difference? Absolutely. So germline genetics is really based on mutations that arise from the very beginning, that you inherit or have been there from the very start. So those are mutations that are found in all of your cells. And we think some of them predispose to cancer development because they affect the ability of your body to maintain fidelity or to maintain the DNA without creating new mutations. So these are what we call DNA repair genes that get when they get mutated. Now when the cells duplicate themselves during development, they make errors and new mutations can occur. So that includes genes such as BRCA1 and 2 has been discussed, as well as other genes that are involved in DNA repair pathways. And we've gotten to actually be able to take advantage of these mutations from a therapeutic standpoint because it turns out certain chemotherapeutic agents in certain drugs can actually be more helpful in patients who have those mutations. So one of the things that's emerged is that as we sequence more and more pancreatic cancers, we're finding that we're starting to find more and more of these DNA repair gene mutations in those cancers such that we actually believe as a community that everyone who's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer should um, have their tumors looked at for these particular mutations um, with the hope of potentially using that again to guide therapy. Now, there's a second class of mutations, not germline, but these are mutations that occur in individual cells in the body at some point after birth. And these are what we call somatic mutations. These are mutations that can drive, actually drive the growth and development of tumors. One of these mutations that falls into this class is the mutation in KRAS. And so these are mutations that we think are integral to the formation of particular cancer types, KRAS and pancreatic cancer, but they're not there from the very beginning from when you're born. They emerge at a later time point, but clearly play an important role in cancer development and play a, a potentially important role in guiding treatment, again, using targeted drugs that target these specific mutations. And so, so you make a very good point about getting, when you're diagnosed with a, a cancer like pancreatic cancer, really getting that evaluated to look for these genetic mutations because there may be drugs that can target that specifically. So you mentioned in lung cancer the fact that we have drugs against KRAS um, that have shown promise um, and that the data are out in terms of that fact with pancreatic cancer. Are there clinical trials looking at that? So there are clinical trials using those same agents in a broad array of cancer types that have KRAS mutations, specifically with that one particular mutation, the G12C mutation. And so there are clinical trials that might be available. Again, it's not that common in pancreatic cancer, so a lot of patients would not be eligible. Now, there is a clearly a push to develop KRAS drugs that target a large number of KRAS mutations beyond G12C. And, uh, and there's a, a tremendous amount of research to develop this. In fact, the National Cancer Institute has a whole RAS initiative, which is really focused on developing more fundamental understanding of KRAS and other RAS proteins and trying to develop new structures and drugs that we can use to target these. In the lab, we've tried to model what would happen if you inhibit uh, uh, KRAS using genetic technologies because we did not have these drugs for many years to try. And so we can actually use genetic tricks to disrupt or knock out all KRAS function in cells. And when we've done that in pancreatic cancer, we see that it can be quite effective in reducing the growth of many pancreatic cancer cell lines. But a 
subset of them seem to continue to survive and grow despite complete loss of KRAS, suggesting that even with these drugs, there is likely to be some resistance. Now, the encouraging part is we can use these models to study how cells evade KRAS inhibition, how they resist, how they continue to survive. And using these uh, this data, we can now use that to bring it into our clinical trials and try and design better combination therapies that might overcome the resistance mechanisms that develop with KRAS inhibition. Now, we're excited we finally have drugs that target KRAS to really test these hypotheses and really see whether we can overcome resistance. But because of the genetic studies that we and others have done, it gives us some uh, advanced insight into how to really combine drugs in ways that might help uh, patients even earlier in terms of overcoming resistance to, to KRAS inhibitors as they continue to emerge. So now that we have these inhibitors against the G12C mutation of KRAS, have you looked at mice who have that mutation and see whether these drugs work, um, whether there is a significant proportion of them that are resistant, or whether most of them actually will respond like the lung cancer patients have. So the, there are studies that have been done using human cell lines that have particular this KRAS uh, G12C mutation and put them into mice and then treated the mice with the drugs. And they can be quite effective in shrinking the tumors. Now, we do see that, again, a subset of those tumors will recur. And, uh, you know, a lot of work is being done now to identify those resistance mechanisms and then hopefully bring that quicker to the clinic. That's something we've really learned from targeting other mutations and other cancer types at lung cancer, that cancers will often find ways to escape uh, the inhibition, but that we can now, knowing that, try and study that in advance and hopefully design our clinical trials in better ways to really bring up those combination therapies sooner and hopefully prevent the, uh, the emergence of resistance to these drugs. So... Given the choice, if a patient is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, there are standard chemotherapy regimens that are given, and we know that, you know, these may or may not be effective. But if a patient has a particular mutation and there is a clinical trial that is offering them a medication targeted against that mutation, are they better off just statistically? Um, to take the clinical trial over the standard of care? Or is it better to do the standard of care, wait till you fail, and then try a, a targeted therapy? So many of these targeted therapies, when they're first initially introduced and tested in patients, are often used after the standard of care has already been given. And there may be a point once we show that they're efficacious or they work, that they then be be, uh, are brought up to earlier stages. That's true, for example, in lung cancer and specific types of mutations in lung cancer that we've observed. But at this point, most of these trials, at least the early phase trials, are after uh, standard of care. So I think that right now, standard of care chemotherapy is really our best bet. How we tailor which chemotherapy to give, it, give may depend a little bit on whether there are mutations in DNA repair genes that we can detect in cancers. So I think it's important to talk to your oncologist or doctor about looking at the sequence because that could uh, affect how you choose the chemotherapies that we typically give. Um, and then hopefully down the line, some of these targeted drugs will make their way to where they might uh, be helpful in the first line uh, prior to what we have currently, and maybe replace the current therapies in terms of standard of care. I don't think we're quite there yet in pancreatic cancer for targeted therapies. So when we talked about germline mutations, and some people may have, for example, a BRCA mutation, 
Are you using that information to tailor your therapy as well? And if so, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yes, we are using that. So we do know that DNA repair pathways are, are, are abnormal in patients who have BRCA2 mutations. And it turns out certain chemotherapy therapies that we give can be more effective in that context. Those cells can't repair the DNA damage that those chemotherapies um, uh, actually induce, which leads them to be more sensitive to those chemotherapies. And so we are tailoring our, our um, chemotherapies a little bit in terms of having that mutation. We also know that there's a certain class of drugs called PARP inhibitors that have been quite helpful in uh, breast and ovarian cancers with BRCA mutations that now have shown some um, efficacy in, in patients who have BRCA uh, germline mutations in pancreatic cancer um, and recently was FDA uh, approved actually for that indication in the last month. And so again, the, the knowledge of these mutations and their presence in the tumors is helping us guide how we treat our patients. And so tell me about uh, kind of how that impacts overall survival. If we give standard chemotherapy, how efficacious is it? And if we can target something, how much does that improve outcomes? So in terms of overall survival, standard of care chemotherapy in which we use really four drugs, three of which are chemotherapies, uh, a, a regimen called Fulfirinox, which has been around now for nearly a decade, is still the standard of care. And, 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 and it was important when this, the initial results came out nearly a decade ago because it really showed that combinations of chemotherapy could be better than a single chemotherapeutic agent. In the years, the 2000s, we did a number of trials in which we combined chemotherapies, and none of them were better than one, one drug alone. And so that really showed us that, that combination chemotherapy can be helpful in pancreatic cancer. And I think those are still the standard of care at this point, though, again, we can tailor a little bit based on, on the sequencing and, and the presence or absence of these DNA repair mutations, and I think that's important. Dr. Mandar Deepak Mazumdar is an assistant professor of genetics and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.